On this edition of the Scott Radley Show podcast, we are talking about what you can actually do now. Paul Johnson will join us to sort this out. A little confusing still, but we're going to try and work you through that. We're going to talk about housing in the city because there's a new study out, a new report out that may blow you away of the most of the least affordable cities in all of North America. Hamilton is now for housing less affordable than Los Angeles, New York, Chicago, Miami, Hamilton. Yeah, we're talking about that. And Rick Natras, who played for both the Montreal Canadiens and the Toronto Maple Leafs, joins us to chat about what that's like, what each of those franchises and markets is like to play for since the series is starting. Enjoy. Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. Some good news today. Don't know if you caught it, but Doug Ford announced everything is open and life is back to normal. That's what he said, right? Ben, no? Oh, not exactly. Okay, not exactly that we're all back to complete normal as we were pre-March 13, 2020. There are still some rules and regulations and limits and things like that uh, to help us navigate our way through this, what you can do, what you can't do. Uh, I'd like to welcome in Hamilton Emergency Operations Center Director Paul Johnson, who joins us. Paul, how are you tonight? I'm fantastic, Scott. Thanks. And uh, I was I was worried I was looking at the wrong press release there for a second. So thanks for... <laughs> well, I was thinking I was going to make your job a lot easier by just saying, yeah, you would have. all done. Go home. <laughs> I know. It would have been a quick conversation because I would have been running to do something else. But yeah, it, you know, it is, uh, it, it is, you know, it's nice to be able to laugh a little bit because it is the start of of much better times coming out. So all joking aside, uh, you know, today I think is something people were we're really waiting for and very interested in and, and very excited about. And that is that, that, you know, some of these sporting events can happen in terms of basketball courts, tennis courts, getting out golfing, uh, recreational boating, even within your own family on uh, starting this weekend, uh, midnight on, on Saturday. So it's, it's all, it's all starting to see us progress towards the gradual reopening of so many things in our community. All right, so uh, look, we could be here for six hours, and I know you can't do that this evening, nor can I, but uh, if we were to go through everything, but you've touched on a whole bunch of these things, what else? Because there, I think there still is, because there's been so many changes back and forth and back and forth, there's been a lot of confusion. Can you do anything this weekend outside, essentially? I'm not talking about restaurants and stuff. If you're going to do something that is an activity, is everything back on the table now? Yeah, I can't find too many examples uh, that, that that are off the table. So I would say that uh, almost everything people would want to do from uh, you know being on sports fields, again, no organized team activity. So sports teams can't come out and hold a practice and hold a, a game. But if a family wants to get out and, and kick the soccer ball around, play tennis, uh, shoot hoops at the local basketball court, uh, use driving ranges, skate parks, our escarpment stairs will be open for recreation. Get out golfing, uh, and as I say, also get out in the boat and, and some recreational boating. All of those things are are, are now available as of 12:01 a.m. Uh, on on Saturday. So hold on tomorrow. They won't be open tomorrow, but uh, get ready for Saturday and, and and moving forward. What's also good news is that the outdoor gathering limit is five and that doesn't need to be just your immediate family so if you're meeting up with a couple of friends in the park or shooting hoops with a couple of friends at a basketball court perfectly fine obviously going out and and golfing with uh, with a foursome uh, perfectly fine too who aren't your your household so that's the the piece that's nice is we get to have a little bit of social connection outdoors and we obviously get to use some of these amenities that have been closed for for so long, and and perfect timing with the weather and the 
and the warm temperatures. So that's what's that's what's changed. Uh, everything else right now uh, remains. So there's stuff I know you want to talk about in terms of what comes next. But in terms of the immediacy of Saturday, it really is those those things we want to do out in parks and and in these uh, recreational amenities that are now open uh, and people can do that and also get together with a very limited number of people. But in terms of do people want to have indoor parties, do they want to go and do, you know, sit on a patio, those types of things, they all remain closed and and we remain still under that stay-at-home order from that perspective. Okay, and not to parse things too specifically here and not to be too silly, but if you, when you say you can get together with some other people into groups of five, you can do that, uh, presumably if you can do it in public, you can do it in your backyard. So the neighbors don't have to call and report you that you've got people over on your patio. If it's a small number of people, that seems to be exactly what's there. It's the social gatherings, whether it's an organized event or a social gathering, it's, uh, but it must be outdoors. Uh, so none of the will start outdoors and have a, you know, a little bit of a barbecue and then move indoors and, and play, play cards mm. or do something else for the rest of the evening. So, uh, you know, really it's still a zero tolerance because it is very unsafe and the risk is much higher when you move things to an indoor capacity. And the other piece is, you know, continue to keep your distance, uh, wear a mask if you can't keep your distance, hand washing, all those types of things uh, go. So yeah, it's, it's a limited piece. Uh, but we really do need to constrain it to that um, that outdoor activity. This was meant to recognize that it's going to be really hard <laughs> for people to get outside, do all these things, and also not bump into friends or extended family mm-hmm. or trying to make that happen. So I think it's to say keep it to a small number. But uh, our, our understanding as of today's announcement is, uh, yeah, I would extend to any outdoor space. When I asked sort of jokingly, half jokingly, about your neighbors don't have to call and report on you, has that happened in the city? Have we had neighbors reporting on neighbors over the course of this pandemic? Absolutely. And in many cases, some of those have led to us uncovering large house parties. Uh, and, you know, Iris says, man, that's pretty terrible. And like, well, you know, well, some of these places had 35, 40, 50 people in them. Uh, you know, some of them were, you know, we had a, we had a house and actually not far from where I live in Upper Stony Creek, over 100 people in it. Yeah, it was, yeah. It was neighbors there because we don't have bylaw officers patrolling every street in Hamilton. It's a small team. It's very much reactive. And so, yeah, the calls come in, uh, we go out and investigate. And and sometimes, you know, it's probably at a pretty uh, pretty minor level. But uh, the other thing it has done is we have been alerted by the public to some pretty major things that have been going on. Mm-hmm. Businesses that are open, people drive by or they're in their neighborhood and they say, I don't think that business is supposed to be open. And then we can go and attend. And, uh, you know, so some of it's been helpful. I get that it's going to be nice to go back to where we're not keeping tabs on each other. And really, that's what this whole summer is going to be about, slowly returning to a place where we don't have to be looking over each other's shoulder and, and spying on each other and trying to do that piece where we just get back to life, living with COVID-19 in our community, but doing it safely. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. One of the things, and people can go online, you and I can't possibly go through all of the things and all the steps and what comes in the steps because there's a lot and it's there's a lot of pieces there. People need to go look it up. But this is we are in the pre-step one, as I understand it. June 14 is when step one comes in and then it's 21 days to step two, assuming everything goes right. 21 steps to set, to phase three if everything goes right. But even reading phase three is not back to full normal. And that way, even when we get to phase three, that's late July. So it's realistically looking like well into the end of summer at very best before we could do count what we're in 
as a sort of normal, isn't it? It, it is, and I think that's a very fair uh, time horizon to look at. And, and really, this is all tied to how the vaccines are rolling out. And while the vaccine uh, progress is, is positive across the province, including here in the city of Hamilton, uh, the reality is, is we still have a ways to go to get to the type of coverage from a vaccine perspective. And of course, not just first dose, right? We need to get up those second dose numbers as well, fully vaccinated. So we've got a ways to go, and that's really what drives uh, the determination. The other uh, thing I think was important to hear from the province today is that uh, there's an anticipation that at each step along the way, there will or could potentially be uh, an increasing amount of cases. And so you have to let that stabilize and normalize so we don't overrun uh, our services again. And all of this is so that we do not have a wave four. Uh, you know, the third third wave that we're in right now has been pretty devastating. You don't want a big wave. What you want is those those gentle ups and downs for sure will happen. Uh, and that's why it's going to take us some time. So you're right. We're in that pre area. So opening some things early. But in that kind of mid-June piece, again, that's when outdoor dining at a small level will come to fruition. Non-essential retail looking at, at opening up with some pretty significant restrictions on numbers and a slight increase of outdoor gatherings to 10 people. And then when we head into July, you know, looking at a, a few more of those um, those outdoor activities going for sports leagues and other things, maybe opening some outdoor pools, those types of activities, and then looking at some of those other retail and service-related pieces, uh, getting maybe a bit of uh, indoor uh, services up and going as as well. And then finally, step three, where you'd see more of this happening, more indoor recreation, for instance, and that sets us up nicely for the fall. So to your point, it's all uh, very gradual, and it is all dependent on two things. One is levels of vaccination, uh, which in terms of step one, we're getting pretty close to, but then they also look at a number of other factors, including cases and the ability of public health to do their work and, and uh, hospitalizations and all of those numbers. And when we're ready, we'll do it and then at least 21 days in between to see how it all works. But I think what people can be, you know, hopefully buoyed by is the fact that we're starting down this path. And and I know everybody wants it to be, why can't it all be open June 15th? And the answer to that is because that leads to a potential that it would all be closed down 14, 21 days later. And I just don't believe that we can handle that, uh, Scott. Sitting where I sit, it's it's very hard right now for us to, maintain people's adherence to the stay-at-home order. And I think another one would just be a bridge too far. Well, let me ask you about that, because I wonder if you worry that even as we start to open things, as this drags out slowly, emphasis on the word slowly, people look south of the border and they see full houses at baseball games and full arenas packed for NHL playoff games, and they see normal life return. And the the Americans have said July 4th, we're going to be back full steam ahead. Do you worry that people up here look at that and then say, to heck with this, let's, let's just do what we're going to do. If they can do it, we can do it. Yeah. I mean, people have been doing that throughout. So I, I, there will be a bent on that, but you know, in terms of those big things you talk about, I mean, they just won't be allowed and it wouldn't happen. So as much as we would all like to be, you know, packed into a stadium to do this or that, that, that won't be an option and no one really can get around that, but it will be the other little skirmishes around the edges of, of pushing the envelope on numbers of people that we've seen throughout the pandemic. And the good news is, is the majority of businesses, of organizations, of people have been following uh, things and have been willing to do their part. And and I think we just enforce where we, we need to. But the other piece is, you know, I think if we can work as a as a community and and really get those vaccination number up and whatever, let's make sure that it's that that purely that 21 day and not longer. 
because it's a minimum of 21 days, but it could be longer if we don't hit those targets in terms of vaccination, in terms of case counts in communities. So there's a bit of an incentive for all of us to make sure that there's no more than 21 days between these uh, these steps. Uh, and I think that's something, again, we can, we can go on. And really, it is about convincing um, and encouraging people that we know to go get vaccinated. We got to run, but um, there were a lot of people saying this should this opening should happen on a staged basis, not like this, but in areas where there's not as many cases. Open those places up and let people get at it. If that had happened, would Hamilton be in one of the early opening stage areas, or are we one of the ones who's fallen behind a bit? Um, we would, uh, you know, it'd be tough for us because our case numbers are pretty high still. So we're we're still pretty, you know, pretty hot as an as an area. I think what they're recognizing now and doing is people travel. And so doing it community by community is a recipe for a lot of people just to go where things are open as opposed to staying in their area. And by doing everything together, uh, some people will feel, yeah, it's slow for us. Others will feel it's maybe an aggressive pace. But the bottom line is, is that it won't encourage people from Hamilton to travel to, say, Kingston or Ottawa because something's open there. Uh, and vice versa, if it was to happen the other way. So this is a way that the whole province can move together uh, well. And, and in terms of vaccination and other things, Hamilton is is close enough to these these targets that I don't think we'll be left behind because of that. And, uh, you know, our case numbers continue to gradually fall down. So this is, uh, I think we're in, we're in great shape. Well, I must let Paul go because here's the best news. As we're talking about this, uh, we're talking about getting back to normal. Paul, as many people will know, is a high, high level elite basketball referee. That's, that's absolutely true. And I understand you have a referees meeting that is coming up in about two minutes, which is a sign that normal can't be that far away, Paul. So we will take that, let you get to your meeting and cling to the fact that if the referees are preparing for stuff to come back, we can hope for it. Appreciate the time tonight. You bet. Thanks very much, Scott. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. I want to take a few minutes and talk about two stories from this week that aren't directly related, yet they really are. One is about a group in Hamilton called Indwell. I hope you've heard of them. If you haven't, you will now. Um, they do things like, well, m- very much involved in building affordable housing, um, finding places for people who need places, uh, rebuilding old buildings and turning them into housing units, really practical, practical stuff. Uh, they've just announced this week plans for another property that they are going to renovate and turn into housing to help with the housing issues that we all know about in this city. The other story is a report from Oxford Economics. Over in England, they have decided to study the North American housing market. And it discovered something that I think should absolutely blow you away. And we know what the Hamilton housing market has been like. We've seen the prices. That said, if you were to ask the average person what the most expensive cities are to live, where is the least affordable housing in North America? I would expect people would say things like New York, Los Angeles, Chicago, places like that. Well, They have created these indices to look at this and found that Hamilton, Ontario is now the third least affordable housing market in all of North America, ahead of Los Angeles, ahead of New York, ahead of Miami, ahead of Seattle. 
ahead of San Jose. We're only behind Vancouver and Toronto, three local ones. So how do we solve the issue of housing? How do we even begin to solve it when we are this unaffordable? Graham Cubitt is the Indwell Director of Project Development. He joins us now. Graham, thanks for doing this tonight. Oh, thanks very much for having me, Scott. Uh, let's start with that second story, just very briefly. I don't know that you'd seen that report. It doesn't really matter. But when you hear that we are now the third least affordable housing market in all of North America, are you are you are you surprised by that, or is that kind of what you expected? You know, I was hearing you uh, read that, and it's uh, it was shocking, but not surprising. Uh, it totally blows our consciousness of ourselves as Hamiltonians. You know, we like to think of ourselves as an affordable city, but everybody knows that we actually are not nearly affordable enough anymore for most people who live here. And, uh, and that's happened so quickly that I think it's reshaping our own thinking of ourselves. Uh, but no, it's, it's not surprising based on, you know, every flyer I get in the mailbox now is a realtor's ad. Um, every rent you see on Kijiji is over a thousand bucks, even for a room in a basement. So it's sadly not surprising. And for the record, just so people listening going, we're the third most expensive. No, I didn't say expensive. Third least affordable. It's based on a number of indices, including salaries or income and all kinds of things. But it's affordability. Um, right. And, and yeah, Graham, I was talking. Helpful. Yeah. yeah and, and I was talking to my neighbor today. I was outside for a few minutes and I don't even know how he got to it, but he brought up the conversation. He's got three young daughters and he goes, they're never going to be able to afford a home in this city. And, you know, I, I can't argue with them. No, it's uh, it's a conversation that we hear every day, actually. Uh, well, I was going to say around the the lunch table, you know, in conversation with staff across Zoom teams, you know, in in the dialogues that we're having with tenants who are calling, we get at least three, five calls a day from people asking for help finding affordable housing, and uh, it's now affecting every household. Really, it's not just an issue if you're on ODSP or OW; it's if you're working full time. And I think the pandemic has really only exacerbated that, that, you know, most of our essential workers, uh, their wages didn't double during the pandemic, but housing prices went up how much rent skyrocketed uh, just in the last year and a half. So it's a, a big issue on everybody's mind. Okay. So look, Hamilton is not entirely unemployed. We have lots of people who are working in the city and lots of people making good money. Um, so is the issue here really about supply there's just not the supply to be able to meet what we need is that really where the problem lies i think there is an issue of supply uh but that's not really the whole issue um many of the apartments that are owned in hamilton right now have changed hands in uh in the last few years um and new landlords who are buying are buying in at a different rate. You know, when you buy a more expensive building, you need to rent it at more expensive rates. And so they're raising rents to kind of make their business model work. I think a lot of folks who've owned property for a long time are saying, well, you know, we've broken through a sort of a psychological cap, a thousand dollars for one bedroom used to be like out of, nobody even thought that was possible. Now people are like, well, I'll just see what the market will, will bear. And so they'll charge 1200 for something that used to be rented for, you know, six fifty, eight hundred dollars and i think there is an element of uh self-interest or greed potentially is uh, another way to put it that is driving the rental market if people are willing to pay it why don't i charge it and i but but if we had thousands more units in this city you wouldn't be able to i mean it's supply and demand right i mean we we have we don't have enough to be able to drive the price down that that is true yeah, there isn't enough to drive the price down. And a lot of the uh, rental units that were here are being uh, converted back to single family homes, a lot of like triplex conversions or things like that, which have existed for a long time. Um, and a lot of the new housing that is built is more built as sort of 
a condo market, but it being mm. rented out and, and the cost of new construction is very high. And so, you know, there's no way to actually rent a new apartment or a new condo out for less than $1,500 just, just in cover costs. So that we, we are in a very complex time of prices going up on every front because of the cost of construction and the reduction in supply. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Just before we get to your project, you were just talking about, you know, these developers, other people are trying to build condos rather than affordable places. Well, one of the things we've heard for a long time now is that the LRT, if it's built, where that's still in question, but if it's built is going to open lots up and we're going to have all this new development and new affordable housing that's going to pop up. And I'm listening to this thinking, well, wait a second, where's that going to happen? Because all the developers who've bought up this land anticipating an LRT, I'm not sure they're looking to go into affordable housing. They want those condos you're talking about, don't they? I can't speak for developers of condos, uh, but I know that uh, if we look at our at our near neighbor Kitchener, um, I think it's reported about 3,000 uh, condo building permits have been issued since the LRT was announced. That's phenomenal. I just was talking to uh, somebody there who said it's either 10 or 11 of those units are affordable. They needed to get the number right, but uh, they were going to get back to me. It's literally next to nothing or virtually nothing. Uh, it, but it's the intention from the get-go. It wasn't put into the plans to include them in as a requirement, let's say in a zoning or an expedited process or something like that. So I don't think one naturally follows the other. It has to be intentional. Um, and... And we have an opportunity in Hamilton here if uh, we're going to build the LRT to really make sure that that intention is in there right up front. I think the other angle, though, is that we could actually start by getting the affordable housing projects if we want to build some along the corridor there. Get those ones out the door right away before the boom starts. Let's build them in right up front so that we actually have that guaranteed locked in as one of the legacy benefits of, uh, of the LRT. And that sounds like something that Indwell could do. For for those who don't know about Indwell, and as I said off the top, I hope most people do, because what you guys do is is important. But for those who don't, take a few seconds and explain the what I what Indwell is all about. Sure. Well, we are a Hamilton-based charity. Our mission statement is to create affordable housing for uh, affordable housing communities for people seeking health, wellness, and belonging. Historically, that has been tenants who may have experienced disability for some reason. Um, often have a low income due to a, due to not being able to work, but we're seeing it that broaden out to many people who are calling saying, I want to be a part of a safe community. I want to be a part of a community where I can be known. The pandemic has really impacted isolation and social cohesion. And people are saying, I want to, I want to know who my neighbors are. I want to feel like I belong. Um, I want to live in an energy efficient and beautiful apartment. And so our mandate is really to create those communities where people feel health, wellness and belonging. Has the definition, and with what we talked about right off the bat here, has the definition of affordable housing changed? Because most people think of it as you've just described it. Maybe people who have disabilities or have some reason why they couldn't nor naturally afford a, a typical apartment, you would think affordable housing. But a lot of people now, they couldn't afford an apartment anyway. So has, has who is looking for, quote, quote, affordable housing changed? You, you raise a really interesting question. Uh, the definition has changed. Uh, the definition isn't static, and it depends on who's defining it. The city of Hamilton defines uh, affordable housing as housing that's within 125% or less of average market rent. CMHC calculates the average market rent on an annual basis, but um, CMHC's own definition of affordable housing is typically being 30% of a, of, of a household income. 
that's even changed to 30% of a median market income. So there's lots of different definitions. I think the core in our consciousness of affordable housing, we're, we're used to thinking about affordability for people who are working full-time, maybe at a minimum wage or at, at a lower income, or people who, who aren't able to work due to disability or, or maybe Ontario Works. The reality for... Um, for most folks, though, is that if you're spending a thousand bucks a month, works at twelve thousand a year. If you use the thirty percent, you'd need to be making thirty-six thousand dollars a year as a household income. That's uh, there's lots and lots of Hamilton households who are uh, at or below that, and so the affordability crunch is really now way beyond people who are living on ODSP or or have a fixed income. Yeah. And I mean, you guys, I don't know how many, how many buildings does Indwell have or have in the works right now in Hamilton? Uh, in the, uh, right now, I think we have nine buildings in Hamilton, but, uh, we've got another, um, well, three projects under construction with, uh, Royal Oak. We've got, uh, Wentworth Baptist, which we just announced this week. We've got 180 Ottawa. Uh, we just last year opened, uh, two projects, uh, McQuest and Lofts, uh, at 256 Parkdale and North End Landing in conjunction with James North Baptist Church at 500 James North. Um, that was about 100 apartments almost with those two projects last year. So uh, we've got a lot of projects in the works, but uh, we could probably, you know, if we if we could open a project every month, 50 apartments every month, and, and start to scratch. If you had the money. If you had the money. Because, I mean, yeah. you operate a lot on donations, right? I mean, you don't have a bottomless pit of money to do this. Well... <laughs> We are a faith-based organization, so we uh, we believe that the uh, resources are out there, uh, but tracking them down is often a big part of our workload. Um, the the issue is that no, the money isn't endless, and uh, and if we had the money, I mean, the national housing strategy very important role, uh, but even that is a complex process to get CMHC to invest. We're working hard with you know Minister Tassi, obviously, and other uh, MPs locally to say let's make sure Hamilton gets. Uh, you know, gets its fair share of the national housing strategy so we can put a dent in this problem. You know, we're part of a coalition of of Hamilton community housing developers called Hamilton is Home. Our goal is to build 3,000 units in three years. It's ambitious, but actually that number comes from a list we made. If we'd all developed all the sites that we could access, um, it adds up to about 3,000. I think it was 2,892. That is possible. Uh, it would take coordination, it would take some cash, it would take cooperation from the city, but it is actually possible. It is, uh, it's good work you guys do, and, and it's uh, it's for a, an important thing that is uh, very difficult to catch up with. I mean, you're always going to be chasing, I'm guessing, but mm-hmm. uh, Graham Cubitt with Indwell, the Director of Projects and Development. By the way, people can go look up Indwell, it's I-N-D-W-E-L-L, right? Indwell.com.ca, right. what's, what's uh, your website? Indwell.ca, yeah. Indwell.ca, go look it up. Um, you know, maybe if this is something that is important to you and you feel strongly about, you may want to throw a little money at them and help donate some cash there. Uh, you know, that's, that's, that is certainly, I'm sure that Graham yeah. would probably not send you yeah, away if we you were interested in helping. You know, it. the other key area though, is that we also are looking for people who want to put their money behind us, uh, in a, in an investment way. You know, somebody called mm. this week, it's a potential for a project. If we had $3 million, we could secure the site. We could probably build around, uh, 200 apartments. It's hard for us to just go out and find that money on the spur of the moment, but there's lots of money Absolutely. out there. And, uh, you know, I think that these are the issues that uh, our community is rallying around solutions. Graham Q, really appreciate the time today. Thanks for doing this. My pleasure, Scott. Thanks for having me. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML.
I was thinking to myself the other day, who do I know who's played for both the Canadians and the Leafs? And there's a few. There's a few people. I mean, don't forget, we had the Hamilton Bulldogs here in town for a number of years, and a bunch of the guys who played on that team, that was the Canadians farm team, a bunch of the guys ended up playing on both teams. I knew them, Mike Komisarek and Ron Hainsey and um, Frank Mahovlich. But there's one local guy who we all know well. We all know his name. He is a Stanley Cup champion. Now, he didn't win the Stanley Cup with either of these two teams. He won it in the very vicious Battle of Alberta, talking about two teams that don't get along so well. But he played for the Montreal Canadiens, and he also played for the Toronto Maple Leafs. So he knows all about both these markets and both these teams and both these franchises and the pressure that comes from both these places. His name is Rick Natras, and he joins us now. Rick, how are you? It's been a long time. Scott, how are you? I'm doing great. Are you excited about this? As a guy who's worn both sweaters, well, not, are you excited about this? Not as much this? as my wife is. She's all dressed up and everything, as you can imagine. She's Even though we enjoyed our time in Montreal, she's a Leaf fan. So um, so she's getting ready and nervous, and I think she's pouring herself a glass of wine. I'm getting nervous because <laughs> I thought I was supposed to answer that uh, you know question, and I'm, like, <laughs> I'm pretty sure my daughter can do a better job as she graduated uh, kinesiology from UFT. So I'm, uh, unfortunately yeah, well, she's she not would here know to it. make me look smart. Yeah. She's not here to make me look smart. So thank God I don't have to answer that. And I won't, it wasn't in my contract when I called in. So, uh, <laughs> at the end of the day, Scott, I, you know, it's, we're looking forward to, you know, the North, we saw the Edmonton play last night, you know, Winnipeg, you know, big heavy team and with a good goaltender. And we're looking forward to this one because, what we've seen from the other side across the border has been pretty intense hockey so far. Well, it has. And, you know, one of the things, it's funny you mentioned your wife being a little nervous and pouring a glass mm-hmm. of wine because it, it yeah. seems when you talk to people who are Leaf fans, there is <laughs> an awful lot of nervousness about this, even though the team was by far the best team in the North Division this, this year. There's a lot of nervous Leaf fans right now. You know, it's funny, Scott, because if you go back, everybody was so excited about you know, the North and getting to watch all the Canadian teams. Unfortunately, we didn't get to see as many as we thought because they're still blacked out in, you know, the markets, which is ridiculous. Anyways, the whole point is that we wanted to see that. Then when the Leafs were doing so well, you saw in Montreal started very quickly too, right? So everybody thought they were going to get off to a good start and they laggered a little bit. And then the Leafs, you know, have been consistent, the most consistent I've seen them, you know, in in, in a lot of years, and which is something you need to be successful. But now it's like, well, it's only the North division and, you know, all that kind of stuff. So we want to see the matchup, but I think if they're going to get the first case of the Leaf uh, playoff series, who better than Montreal? You played, as I said, off the top, you played in both these markets. And look, if you, you, you hit, if you're going to play for a bunch of Canadian teams, as you did, you want to play in the battle of Alberta back when it was nasty. And you did that. uh, And you want to play for Toronto and Montreal. We're going to leave Calgary out of the discussion for today because it's irrelevant for this, but Let's start with Montreal. You played yeah. there. What is the what is it like playing wearing that sweater? Because there's got to be well, just a ton of pressure, even though they haven't won in a while. There's got to be a ton of pressure. Yeah, it's it's funny, you know, Scott. And I think you know when I got drafted to the Habs in the second round, I think I was as surprised as many people, right? And then you know going there at the time, my first thought was this 1980. They just won four Stanley Cups in a row. They had some of the two of the best seasons out of those four years that have ever, you know, been played in the NHL as well. So they're very strong, a lot of depth. They really worked their, uh, their minor system and developed and, you know, all the things that we're seeing the Leafs do in the last five or six years or eight years, I guess, here in Sanhan's been here or somewhere around eight years. 
So, you know, Montreal was a place that uh, for, you know, an English-speaking kid. And, you know, remember back then, Scott, we're pretty much the same age. We only saw Toronto Maple Leafs on Wednesdays and Saturdays. We didn't see the Habs unless they were coming to Maple Leaf Gardens. So, you know, you, even though, you know, there was a big contingency and a lot of people, I guess they realize there's a lot of French here in, in Hamilton, right? So where I grew up at Afton Avenue between Gage and, and Sherman, there was a lot of French because the public school was there. So we used to have the rivalry. But, uh, you know, playing in Montreal was something that uh, at the time I thought it was going to be a huge hurdle because of the fact that they were so successful and, and that kind of stuff. And they really, you know, if Larry Robinson can play in the minors and sit on the benches first or second year. Then where does Rick Natcher sit, fit in? So it was the best thing that ever happened to me. They developed, uh, the pressure was for me minimal because the fact is they had Doug Wickenheiser come in the first pick overall and the Denny Savard situation that he should have went. He went third overall to Chicago that year in 1980. Uh, they sort of left me alone and I made them as a 20 year old, but you know, back then again, I spent more time riding the bike and sitting on the bench than I actually did playing. Uh, and that was a whole part of the development, but, um, I was just happy. I didn't understand French and I couldn't read it because then I couldn't understand how bad they were talking about me, but, uh, <laughs> Montreal was the best thing ever. And, you know, saying that I don't mean long winded, but being a Toronto Maple Leaf fan, and then going there and then being introduced to Toll Blake and sitting down just me and him and having lunch for two hours. Mr. Beliveau, the Richards, I mean, Dickie Moore, you know, Boom Boom Jeffrey on, you know, uh, Doug Harvey. And I was a, I'm a hockey fan still to this day, and I was then. And to meet these people and the success that they've had and, and the thoughts they had in regards to how Montreal does things, you know, not stepping on the crest in the middle. Everybody does that now. You know what I mean? Like you don't drop your yep, jersey yep. on the ground. I don't care if it's a it's a practice jersey. That crest doesn't touch the floor. I mean those type of things. The pride and it was carried on. And you know they have the saying about passing the torch, and that's truly what Montreal was. Is they passed the torch and told guys exactly what that logo meant and how it should be respected and what you needed to do to play for that team. And I think uh, you know hard work and development was certainly part of that. Uh, that history and that, uh, that part of their, uh, their success, you know, Montreal is the second winning sports franchise in the world behind the Yankees, I believe, right? The 25 to 24 yeah, yeah. The championship. So it was incredible. It was very difficult, uh, very difficult physically because they pushed me and very difficult mentally because, you know, you want to play, but um, they have other plans and they, you know, put you in a position either to succeed or fail and thank God, you know, that development there and the, and the amount of, um, I don't want the pressure, I guess, to, to perform really helped me later in my career and through my career. What about the Leafs? Because when you get to yeah. the Leafs, I mean, they were they were about to get really good again, and thanks in a yeah. large part to, you know, the trades of bringing Gilmore yeah. and stuff over. Yeah. But, you know, not the same. So, no. but, but at the same time, you know, the Toronto market is a, pretty avid and pretty intense oh. about the Maple Leafs. <laughs> yes. and so before, is it the same? You know, Scott? Yeah, no, I think, it, you know, today with the society and, and social media and all that kind of stuff, it's just expanded. I think, you know, as the Montreal Canadiens, we went from, you know, city to city back then in regards to playing in Canada. I think, what, five teams, Scott? I think it was six maybe with uh, Quebec, right? So anyways, yeah, so six. So, you know, there was a big contingency of half But when you went through Canada as a Maple Leaf, 
there's unbelievably how many fans, right? So, I mean, even with this, the history we talked about, you know, it's been 40-something years since the Habs and them have played, and then I think it was 67 before that, so 12 or 13 before that, they've only played really two series in, in what, 60, 60 years or yeah. 55 years or whatever the number is. I've only got grade 11 math, so you can put me on the spot here. <laughs> but uh, at the end of the day, I think, you know, the, the mystique of the Leafs, and I said to this, and, you know, I'm, I've been on the board of directors for Maple Leaf alumni for the last six or seven years, and we had Brendan Shanahan on. We just talked about that a little bit about, you know, if you ever want as a Toronto Maple Leaf. I don't think there could be anything bigger. The Habs, as much as you're an idol there because of the, the success they've had, I don't think it would be anything close still to what Toronto has. Are they spoiled because they got 24 of them? I don't know. But at the end of the day, you look at that and you think to yourself, the Toronto Maple Leafs come in here. And I got a little bit of a story here. I got traded to Toronto after 10 years in the National Hockey League, a Calder Cup in the American League with Patrick Waugh, Montreal's farm system, a Stanley Cup with Calgary, of course, and played the World Championships and won a silver medal. I got traded in 92 with Dougie, the biggest trade. And my mom's looking at me. I grew up a single parent, as you met my mother years ago, Scott. So, I mean, uh, yep. you know, and I grew up and she's looking at me and I'm like, well, okay, you know, and I know my mom. We spent a lot of time together, huge hockey fan. And I'm looking and I said, she says, what's up? She says, I can't believe it. You're a Toronto Maple Leaf. It was like I finally made it or did something good, you know, after <laughs> 10 years because now I'm a Leaf, right? So at the end of the day, there's that. My mom was an original Toronto lady, so she's been – she was listening to Lisa on the radio back in the you know thirties and that. So I think going being a Toronto Maple Leaf just even though I it was a short period of time because I became a free agent after that ability and what has helped me uh, you know through my retirement is being involved in the organization at different levels certainly with the alumni that you know it's been a, a blessing you know those two organizations for sure and then we'll leave calgary out but i want to stanley cup with them so you never leave that out right so no in the cities though when you're now when yeah. you're a member of these two teams because there's yeah. there are no two there aren't two bigger markets but i know they say the rangers oh. and stuff i look i it, the rangers are huge but i can't believe yeah. that, no. that montreal and toronto are not the cities where if you're a member of that team you are not the the king of the hill in those areas. What's it like in each of those cities when you're a member of the team going in someplace? Do you get recognized everywhere? Yeah, it's, you know, it's funny, and I say it in Hamilton, I don't go out much because when you quit drinking 18 years ago, there's no reason to go out a lot of times now. <laughs> you know what I mean? And I went out, I had a lot of reasons before to go out. So at the end of the day, I think, you know, Toronto, when I go there, I walk around, it's amazing. I've been out 27 years, you know what I mean? And people still recognize me. I was fortunate enough to do some TV and have radio shows and stuff like that. But still, you know, even the Habs. Uh, and it's funny nowadays because, you know, I was very young and I played maybe 100 games for the Habs over a three-year period. I uh, was with them for five years. And anyways, that people, hey, are you Rick Natchez? She played for the Montreal Canadiens. And I'm like, that's like 40 years ago, right? And But they remember me still from the Habs because we didn't see a lot of Calgary, certainly didn't see Philadelphia or St. Louis back in those days, right, in regards to a lot of hockey. So, I mean, the recognition I get certainly in Toronto and even Montreal is uh, still surprising. Is that difficult? Be, knowing yeah. that, knowing not only, and again, talking about all the players right now, but yeah. knowing that everything you do in public, people yeah. know what you're doing. You, you know, you, and especially, I mean, you didn't live through the social media stuff well, as a player, God. but 
we might yeah. not be talking yeah, probably. right now, Scott, and I might not be married or I might not because situations that you see now, it's just an innocent picture and it can turn into something extra, you know, extravagant and, and, and certainly costly to some people. But I think, you know, at the end of the day, you were, they knew everything. The Montreal Canadiens, even though there was no social media and all that, and it was a big city to, you know, to get lost in, you thought, Montreal knew everything. You know, the, the, why they didn't have spies out there, but people would, you know, through whatever. I mean, they knew exactly what you did. So when they asked you a question, what you do last night, you better tell them the truth. Right. You know, mm-hmm. even though you probably were, you know, broke the rules a little bit. But uh, in today's <laughs> society, I think these kids, you know, it's a huge responsibility, though. Also, it's just in that form of when the, the league became a business, right? You know, about 93, you know, when the contract started, we saw, you know, everything was exposed because for years we didn't get, you know, hey, Rick, you're the top six guys being paid on the team on the back end. And then I find out like I'm 11th and I'm playing the third most minutes or something. You know what I mean? So that was, a, you know, a good thing and a bad thing. It became a business and made it harder to have dynasties. Right, but I think well, yeah, but you know what? The, yeah. the so you're right though. The social media yeah. stuff it has its downsides, yeah. but you yeah. know what? Also, they're being paid a few bucks too oh, to, to suffer. Please. through are their brand now. They're a brand, right? And and even the lesser guy and someone like myself, fourth, fifth, and sixth defenseman, seventh, you know, on you know, in Calgary where I fought to be in the lineup every day, uh, on a pretty good team, I like to say. But those things you can build a brand, right? And that brand could carry over. So. You know, not having that, and I, I don't know if we're getting off topic, but since I left, I did a lot of charity. You know that, Scott, and I've done a lot of radio yep. TV, and yep. at first didn't get paid, and these guys always say, oh, you got to get paid. You got to get in, right? And that's the biggest thing, and what do you become after? So being a hockey player has been very good to me uh, and my family, and I've, I've tried to give it back. I do a lot of work with a lot of, you know, different groups uh, for kids mostly, and uh, the hockey, you know, like I said, the branding today is way different, but we're seeing the business model expand, right? We're seeing that expand not only in the game of all sports, but, I mean, everywhere. So I think, you know, the players are taking advantage of it, but you are also got to be careful because we're seeing a history. You could have made a mistake 10 years ago, 20 years ago. So I think the last point of this is everybody asked me, why would you quit drinking? I said, pitch your phones. Okay, well, it's, a, it's a wise help. idea. Said, yeah, it's a wise idea because they could take pictures and email it. So there you go. <laughs> uh, before we go, I want to ask yeah. you two things. Before we go, you want about each city. Montreal is they they finished fourth in the division. They yeah. are the underdogs by far in this one. Yeah. That said, you've you've played in front of the Montreal yeah. fans. If Montreal loses this series, do yeah. they get a pass from their fans because they're the underdog or are they still going to be abused by Montreal fans? Well, I think they're never going to be happy, right? That's a market that's never happy. The Toronto Maple Leafs, to you in the season I said earlier, Scott, you know, then, it, well, they play in the North and then, okay, they're dominating. So, oh, geez, because it's only against the North and what, you know, they wouldn't match up against so-and-so, so-and-so. So I think we just talked about social media. I don't think anybody's going to be happy no matter if they win or lose because they're going to pick it apart, right? you got armchair people that uh, a lot of them never played the game and believe they know everything about the game, So, which is fine. That's part of the platform, right? And that's what Maple Leafs want. They want those people on their sites, and the Habs do, so they can generate revenue. 
So I think you have to take the good with the bad with that. But I think at the end of the day, the Habs are never going to be satisfied. I think Bergeron, you know, he's made a lot of changes. It didn't work. It's interesting, this lineup that they put together, no young kids. Is that because of the shock of the first game? You know, Caulfield and, and Romanoff and, and what's his name, the other kid that played last year, uh, third overall there, Kakinani, however you pronounce his name. Yeah, so yeah. is that something to keep them off? Because the, 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 even with no fans, the pressure is going to be unbelievable. And I think that's going to help the Montreal Canadiens as much as it's going to help the Leafs because, again, it's about controlling what you do. Don't let the fans get in your head, even though they're a driving force in some ways. But the first game sometimes, as we've seen in the past, it's like going in Chicago in the old days. The first 10 minutes, if you can survive the storm because the fans were so crazy and the tempo was so high, you've got a good chance of winning. But if you break under that pressure, then that dictates the game. It could dictate the series. All right, and as we go, the Leafs, yeah. big favorites now because of how they did. Yeah. They've, yeah, they've yeah. had failure after failure in the playoffs. What happens if yeah. they lose? How, how bad is it for the Leafs and the players if they lose this series? Well, you know, that's the pressure, right? Like, be the underdog. Like, no, no, hey, they expect us to lose. So Montreal is actually in a better position in that form. But I think with Toronto, the pressure's there. But they've got the ability. I think they did a great job, uh, Dubas and that, and Shanahan, in the last couple of years because I think they certainly understand that finesse is great, but you have to have a mix, and you need that old and new, and you have to have the older leaders to show the new leaders and all that kind of stuff. And people say, oh, that's all you know, hogwash. But that's if you look at the success of the Montreal Canadiens for all those years, that's how it worked. So I think Shanahan's brought that, that style in. Lou Amarillo is a big factor. Mark Hunter. Dubas has done a really good job this past year and a half because we questioned some of his tactics a couple of years ago with not bringing in size because of the playoffs. So I think, you know, Toronto's in a perfect position. And I think, to be honest, and I, and I think the only ones that can beat him in this round is themselves. Because Price, if you look that at is, his numbers, he hasn't done well against the Leafs either, right? So We will see. That is Rick Natra, yeah. Stanley Cup champion, Hamilton resident, former player for the Leafs and the Habs, although by the sounds of it, leaning Leafs right now, but we won't oh, do that. We'll let your My wife handle kill it. Me. <laughs> <laughs> Rick Natra, always appreciate the time. Thanks for Take doing care, this. Take care, Scotty. Thanks, buddy. Bye-bye. That is, as I say, Rick Natras. If you've ever bumped into Rick, he has probably let you try on his Stanley Cup ring, which is very cool. It's about the size of a smart car from Calgary. And uh, Rick is very, very generous with that. I remember going to a game somewhere. He was at an arena somewhere and went into a dressing room and just passed it around. Every kid in the room got to try on a Stanley Cup ring, which was, you know, very generous, especially when you consider that, you know, they're kids. They could drop it. They could whatever. But no, Rick is great with that. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.